welcome to episode 26 of the 1099 for the week of January 25th, 2016 on this rainy, gross day in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, as always, and with me today is the founder of Wajidai Games, Dave Gilbert. Dave, how are you doing today? I am doing good. It's raining there. We're expecting a blizzard here. So really? Yeah. Supposed to come over the weekend. So we'll, oh. we're, we stacked up on uh, waffle mix and we're good to go. <laughs> I like how that is the the first thing where it's like it's gonna be a blizzard. We're gonna be locked in. Everyone needs waffles. This well, is you front. know, with, with, when you got a two year old, that becomes important. Oh, you know what? I guess that does make a lot more sense now, doesn't yeah, it? Because we got a two year old. That's totally the reason why. <laughs> we had um frost for like I know this really sounds like I'm complaining about nothing because I live in Florida, but I was we had about to say. <laughs> we had frost on Wednesday when I was going into the office, and that was just like shocking to me. I I, I was just in Pittsburgh and it was just uh snow and five degree weather so like i'm used to that but here it's like a very wet gross cold where once the wind hits you it feels like it goes right through you so it once again it's always weird to complain about the cold when you're in jacksonville well i know that like i i had friends like in my university days they went to university of miami and there's like two weeks of the year where they needed to get a space heater because there's nothing they have no heat Exactly. They're in their homes. So when it gets cold, there's no escape from it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, I woke up the other day and it was super like 50 or something in my house. And it was like, what is going on? Like it was just escaping. It's not well like like held in. It's yeah. Florida is not ready for cold weather. No. Uh, and it's awful when it actually happens. But I could really talk about the weather with you all day. But I'm sure eventually fascinated talk. <laughs> by this. Yeah. So uh, mm. for people who don't know, Watch It Eye Games has been producing some of the most distinctive, critically acclaimed adventure games since around 2006. And mm-hmm. your studio is responsible for the Blackwell series, Gemini Rue, Residence, Primordia, and a whole bunch of other titles. So to kind of kick things off, for you personally, what got you interested in not just game development as a whole, but really developing adventure games specifically? Well, um, they always say write what you know and write what you like, and I both knew and liked adventure games. Um, and back in like 2001, it was just after the World Trade Center fell down, so and I, I was unemployed at the time, and it was kind of a miserable, miserable time for a lot of New Yorkers. So uh, I was kind of looking for something to keep my mind off of stuff, and I discovered Adventure Game Studio, which enables you to create these adventure games and um, I saw some games made with it. I'm like, I think I can make one. So I took a weekend, made a little game and I had no real programming experience before. Uh, adventure Game Studio was pretty easy to pick up and people seemed to like the game. So I made more and then I, you know, flash forward five more years. I had gotten another job. Then I didn't have a job and I decided, well, it's now or never. I had money saved up. And I decided to go for it, and so I made the Shiva. Is Adventure Game Studio, is that similar to something like RPG Maker where you have this base set of tools in a specific genre and you can kind of use that set to create your own distinct thing? Yeah, kind of. Um, I have played around a bit with RPG Maker, um, and I guess they're very similar in that the engine and tool set was designed to make a very specific thing. RPG Maker is designed to make old-school Japanese RPGs like that. Adventure Game Studio is really designed to make 2D point-and-click adventure games and not much else. So it's geared to do that one specific thing, and which makes it easier to make these games, which is also why I haven't moved to another engine 
um, like a lot of people have been asking me to. Is there like a specific set of assets that, let's say someone plays every single one of your games, will they recognize specific assets or is it doesn't, doesn't really work that way? Ah, uh, no. I mean, occasionally I'll like use the same rain effect or I'll use sound effects mm-hmm. from one game to the next. I think the sa- the rain from Gemini Rue is the same rain I used in Blackwell Epiphany. Uh, but other than that, no, I don't really reuse assets. If only because each game uses a different artist and they all have different styles. Yeah. So reusing assets wouldn't make a lot of sense. It just wouldn't fit very well. And when you were coming up, when you were first making those first adventure games and first kind of designing just the ideas, what was your favorite adventure game in general? That so you, the one you hadn't made. What was really your inspiration, and what did you use as maybe not a template, but something to kind of look at and say, I want to make something at this level s- similar to this? Uh, there's a few. I mean, I know that I really, really liked Discworld Noir mm-hmm. um, because. I don't know. I felt like a real investigator. It was very slick, or at least at the time, it it felt very slick. Sadly, the game has not aged well. But I remember thinking, like, "Wow, this is this is just really neat." And I remember playing um, not an adventure game, but a console game called Eternal Darkness: Sanity's Requiem, which was on yes. the GameCube of all things. And I just I fell in love with it. Like, it was a game where you had to play like three times to get the the full ultra ending. And I did it, and I loved it. I just loved. Um, how it just encompassed all these different characters and told this amazing story and just the feeling that I got from playing it. I remember thinking, I want to make, I want to make something um, like this. I want to make something that, so I can make other people feel the way I feel playing this is what I felt. And so that game was a big inspiration. Gabriel Knight, of course, uh, the way it blended supernatural and uh, real history to make something that you could swear happened that way. Um, that kind of stuff. A mishmash of things. You mentioned it was all the way back in 2001 that you got your start. That you started making your first adventure game. And yes. at the time, and I feel like I hear this a lot. A lot of people say, you know, development was just a hobby. It was something that I enjoyed, that I could put time into. But it's it's hard to really, it's hard back then to imagine that you, you know, 15 years later would be where you are now, but it's been that, oh my God, it has been that long. <laughs> yeah. I want to put it that <laughs> So really for you, what, at what point did you really through the entire process, you feel like, you know, I can put all of my resources into this and really make this a profitable career. And I know career is always a weird word, but yeah. make it go from just the side gig, just this, this little like kind of creative adventure into, no, this is my career now. Well, I, I, hmm, it's hard to say. There was no real big epiphany. My thought process was kind of like I, I had money saved up and I was making a game kind of as a way to avoid getting a job. <laughs> and I kind of – I didn't want to get a real job. So I was kind of doing it to put off getting a real job. And, and really there was no other time to do it. I'm like, all right, I've been making freeware games for fun for five years. I really can't think of anything I enjoy more. I can't envision doing anything else but this. And I've got money saved up and I don't have a job right now. If I wasn't going to do it then, then I was never going to. So I just kind of took the plunge and went for it. I mean, honestly, I didn't expect it to go anywhere. 
I re- back then the indie scene was barely anything. Digital distribution had only really been feasible for a few years. Um, in fact, like a lot of people didn't take me seriously. This was back in 2006. Um, so, but I I was just sort of stubborn. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And I somehow made it work. Thank heaven at the time I was a single guy living alone. I didn't have many expenses. So I was able to, to make it work for myself. And it took several years before I really, um, before things took off and I could call myself financially successful. But, uh, yeah, it, it was really just opportunity uh, the time was right, so I did it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm similar in that when I was first writing, it was very important to be like, okay, like I'm a single guy right now. I don't have this massive number of bills. I don't have a family to support. And when I started writing, I had a very similar pushback of, it's always weird uh, going up to someone and being like, you always get those questions when you're in college. Like, what do you want to do with your life? I'm like, I want to write words about video games. <laughs> uh, and people, you know, look at you very oddly like, okay, but what's your real job? And uh, a lot of people I've talked to, uh, developers or writers, had a very similar answer as you when you said, like, you couldn't imagine yourself doing anything else. Like, this was, once you get kind of a taste of a passion, it's so difficult to be like, well, now, no, never mind, I'm going to go do this other thing that might pay more, but I'm really not passionate about it. Yeah. It's it's so hard to kind of change that way of thinking. And I know what you mean. Like, I, I know someone who's been making games for at least five years and um, she keeps referring to herself as amateur. And I'm like, you know, after five years, you're either, you know, <laughs> you're either like professional or, you know, you are either a real developer or you're not. Yeah. And you have to make that choice. And when I, when I started, uh, because I didn't know anyone who was into video games. I didn't know anyone who was, um, any other indie developers or anything. I made a point of calling myself an indie game developer. This is what I am, sort of faking it till I made it. Yeah. And it was very important that I, I felt like a real developer because that's what I wanted to be. So that's what I told people I was. Even though it, it's so weird to think now that there's indie game developers coming out of the woodwork. They're everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Back in 2006, it wasn't really a thing. So to say that... I was like, all right, so you know, what do you really want to do? It was the exact same thing. But um, you know, I eventually got there, so here I am now. And I really do like that point because uh, a lot of journalists, you'll see, like, let's say you're looking at their Twitter and you see like their bio says aspiring games journalist or aspiring writer. And similar to development, like if you've been doing this for years, like you're either a writer or you're not a writer. Like, yeah. You are writing words. You're putting them into like a Word document or a Google Doc or you're publishing them somewhere. And I had that for a bit. Uh, and then similar to you, there was a day where I was like, wait a minute, like I'm a writer. Like I'm not aspiring to be something. I'm yeah. always aspiring to get better, but I am a writer now. And I think If you don't is... take yourself seriously, nobody else will. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the biggest points, especially um, – if you're pitching to someone and you're just like, oh, you know, I haven't done this before. I'm an aspiring writer. Like they're not going to think that you're good if you don't know that you're good or you don't know that you belong there. And yeah, there's a level of confidence, even if it can be, even if it's not always earned confidence, you need to start off with that confidence so that you can actually get better and understand that like I can't. Well, as a creative person, you know, there's this tendency to be humble Mm -hmm. uh, when you're trying to make your way. But I really feel that you need a bit of an ego. Because you need to have an ego to really believe that what you're saying is 
the, what you have to say is is worth it. You yes. know, like why should people pay money or why should people pay attention to me? I believe that what I'm saying and what I'm doing is worthwhile, and you need to have a healthy ego to 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 get there. If you don't have any kind of ego, if you just remain consistently humble, um, then you know why should anyone else take you seriously? So um, yeah. yeah, and I think healthy is the kind of the optimal word right there. Health, where, yeah, healthy. I mean, yeah, exactly. they, are, they are limits. <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. have an ego as a writer or as a developer where you're so confident in what you're doing that you don't listen to anyone else. And, you know, whatever you, if I'm getting edits back from an editor and I'm like, no, I, I'm right, you're wrong. Again, that, that'd be the unhealthy ego. But exactly, you need that ego to believe in what you're doing and know that what you're doing is worthwhile, that there is worth to what you're putting out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and moving back to your game specifically, do you think that the adventure genre as a whole is one of the better places to craft stories within games? And I'm kind of saying this because you're, of course, using items to solve puzzles. You're, you're moving around the environment. But an adventure game, if it doesn't have, in my opinion, if it doesn't have a compelling story and world, people aren't going to stay around. So is that one of the major reasons you like the genre? Or is that not really anything you think about? I mean, I think that it's kind of elitist to think that oh, adventure games are the best at uh, at the best at creating stories. Or the it's a very elitist way of thinking mm-hmm. um, because there are plenty of bad adventure games, yes. and there are a lot of really great uh, games in other genres that tell amazing stories. You know, platformers or even first-person shooters or um, all sorts of other games they can tell amazing stories. So it's kind of elitist to think that. I think one. Um, one thing that it, the adventure game genre can do that other genres can't uh, is that it really it puts you in a very specific experience. You're in a character's shoes and you're making events happen or the events are happening to you. And it's the explorative discovery uh, thing that I find most rewarding in those games. I'm currently, my wife and I are, are playing very slowly playing through Life is Strange. Yeah. And one thing I loved is that even from the first, the first scene in the game, like you're walking down the hall of the school and you see flyers and, and pictures and you see like the other kids and you can look at them, you know, you look at them and you learn so much about what's going on around you just by poking around. And it was so rewarding and then when i got outside and started talking to people i felt like i knew the place it was amazing just how well it did that like i knew that there was this girl missing and then there was this mystery behind it and you know kind of the the social hierarchy like i i got it all just by exploring and poking around and then when you later can go into their rooms and, and look at their stuff you learn about these people and it just was so rewarding to do that and there was this like thrill of you know poking around where you didn't belong uh, and that's what adventure games can do really, really well uh, if it's done right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, could, it could definitely be done wrong. Uh, but when it's done right, there's no experience like it. When it really when it really puts you in there. Yeah, and something like Life is Strange is also just as fun to spectate and watch as it is to play. And I'm guessing you must have had that experience because you said you're playing it with your wife. Um, I have not actually played through all of that game, but I watched it as Giant Bomb played it on their website. And that even... Maybe they're not making all the same decisions I would make, but I'm still getting a lot out of that as an actual viewer. So that's a kind of a, a more modern adventure game. Do you think 
do classic adventure games are they good to watch or do you think they're not nearly as fun to watch and the sad thing is um maybe i'm a little too old to quite understand the let's play phenomena mm-hmm. uh, i think that my kind of games don't fit the whole new streaming sphere yes. <laughs> than other games do um because once you watch it especially a classic game there's really only one way to get through it once you watch it why play it yourself you've already you pretty exactly. much had the same experience um the same with my games i think my games kind of suffer from from streamers because i guess they do kind of advertise it a little bit but um they don't get the the play that another kind of game gets from a, a streamer because it's not fun to watch i find watching especially my kind of games where you've got like a static screen and you know pixel characters walking around the screen and and poking at things occasionally you have like a talking portrait pop up they're not the most engaging things to watch the streaming culture doesn't work well with those games life is strange is different because they have a budget and you get you know like it's more cinematic you get yeah. angles the characters talk they move they gesture it's a lot more fun to watch versus something like mine so um i don't i don't get the um the marketing push from streamers that other games would get, which, uh, which I, I'm going to work on because the whole streaming thing is like this new um, way of marketing your game that I, I'm still not too familiar with. Yeah, see, I've been embedded in this industry for like six years and I still don't fully understand it either. <laughs> like, I feel like I should be in that age range and that level where like streaming and YouTube should make sense. Like, well, I'm a lot getting of the, there. A lot of games now are designed with that in mind. Yeah. They're designed to be streamed and people, you know, designed to be funny or interesting to to watch other people play. That's sort of the um, the way a lot of games are being made with that in mind. It's it's kind of fascinating. It's very sad, bizarre. Sadly, I'm I'm too set in my ways to really <laughs> take advantage of that. But uh, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. See, but I think it's it's good that you're not forcing it because uh, I, if I had to make a bet, I would say there are people that are in suits in an office who are looking at a game and saying, is this streamable? Uh, <laughs> which kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit. Not surprised. But not surprised. It, it, it has to be a thing. So I'm glad that you're not, you know, looking at game and like, yeah, this is really great. But what if we did this so that Let's Plays could be really cool and we can do stuff like that? Uh, I mean, what's funny is that um, this is sort of going off into another topic, but one I, I feel pretty strongly about is like whenever I do something like that, whenever I think, okay, this is what'll sell, or this is what people like, or this is what is popular, or whatever. Whenever I think about that um, and focus, make my game with that in mind, the experience always ends up being very shallow mm-hmm. and not very rich, or it, it lacks something. I know that for a brief period of time. I felt that the whole casual audience was my audience, that this is what was popular, this is what sold more copies, this is how I'd earn more money, and so I started gearing my stuff to the casual scene, and then by the time those games came out, like the casual scene had moved on to something else, and you know, uh, it didn't really, it didn't really work for me anymore. And uh, and then I just started focusing on what I liked and what I wanted in a game, and then it's no surprise that it resonated a lot more with the fans and it sold a lot more as a result. So I always have to remember that, uh, that, okay, no, this is, this is what will sell more. I was like, no, but I have to like it. So I'm sticking with that. I think people can also tell in your content, whether it's genuine or whether, like we said, you're reaching for something, you're reaching for an audience that you think, if you don't fully understand the audience, you can have this kind of tertiary understanding of, well, I think this casual audience enjoys this but yeah. if you aren't invested in that you're only making a guess you're only going off secondhand information and 
very often you'll miss and you'll I do know that a lot of fans are saying, Oh, I want another sci fi game from you, like Gemini Ru or uh or Primordia, do something sci fi dystopian and uh so I'm I'm trying to make me myself, you know, design something. So I'm like, This is what sells, this is what people like. And so I, I'm trying to design this sci fi game and honestly I just was not feeling it. I'm like, I don't really like I'm not gelling with it. Like it's not doing it for me. And I, I really love urban fantasy. I'm a huge fan of Dresden Files and Hellblazer and World of Darkness. And so I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Like I'm I'm going back to urban fantasy. It's what I really, really like. And I've been designing that and having the time of my life. I just love it. Yeah. And I think when you're having fun, usually you're making yeah. better games. How many games have you canned? Like how many times have you started a script or you started something and you're like, like you said, with sci-fi, you're like, I'm not feeling this. Do you just throw all that work away or do you use it later? Yes and no. I mean, I, if I come up with a really good idea for a game that ends up getting canned, and there have been several just in my head or in notebooks where I'm like, you know what? This isn't working. I had an idea for a fantasy game, which I really liked, um, but it was just way too big and epic um, for the time anyway. I just didn't have the the budget or the clout to pull it off, and, and maybe one day I will. Um, but there was there was a neat there was a series of scenes in there which I really, really like. Maybe one day I'll, I'll get to use them. Uh, and there, there's several. There's so many games that I've started designing and realized they just don't work, and I got rid of them. There was this, there was this one sci-fi game I started designing before I, I realized that the central premise was really offensive, like really offensive. Really? And I, I I'm so embarrassed by it that I don't even want to mention what it is. But it was I, when I I showed it to my wife. She's just like, really? <laughs> I mean, do you realize what you're saying? I'm like, oh, whoa, wow, okay. Um, so I I kind of canned that, and <laughs> uh, and I started to feel really disgusting about it. But I um started moving on to other things. And there's so many games that I just decided not to do. But maybe one day I'll I'll get to uh, eventually. And that's what it must be having. It must be great to have your wife around in that role so that like if maybe someone else wasn't around, you might have continued on that game that you didn't realize had a theme or an idea that was realized great. it eventually when. Yeah. Uh, but it, the game itself just wasn't really very good. And yeah. That was also the thing. And I, I had a I did have an idea for a sci fi game that I designed like over a decade ago. But that's way too big and epic. And um, and also like it was just. A collection of interesting bits, but nothing to really bring it together. Um, but uh, that's I'll get I'll get to it one day. That's the one great thing. The problem isn't coming up with the idea; it's choosing which one. Exactly. Um, and we had talked a little bit earlier about classic adventure games, and yeah. I think plenty of people, and I've made this mistake too, look at your games as classic adventure games. But really, <laughs> in many ways, you've incorporated different modern adventure game approaches and ideas to make your titles much more playable and less frustrating than the different things we saw in the past because if you play those old adventure games while the story might still resonate a lot of those mechanics and the way it actually kind of fits together can be frustrating oh, so they're horrible well not yeah all. um i know I, I played i replayed the original gabriel knight um about two and a half years ago uh, as my wife and i we visited new orleans i was like let's play gabriel knight and the it was so dated it was just like it would the I can't even explain it. The design decisions were just so frustrating the way it just sort of expected you to scour the map to like activate the next story point. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very frustrating and I'm like, wow, like this doesn't 
age very well. And it's funny you say how a lot of people think of our games as being classical, because I, I hate that comparison, weirdly enough, to classic adventure games. Mm. Um, a lot of folks who write about our stuff, like, yes, you're keeping the old spirit alive, or I haven't, you know, you're, this, this feels like a LucasArts classic. And I, as flattering as that is, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> because I actually make a lot of effort to not uh, do what the classics, classic games did. I try to think of a more modern audience with modern sensibilities and modern attention spans. Um, and I, I really focus on that. The only thing that looks classic or old school about our games, I think, is the graphics. Really, that's it. Uh, I know that a lot of reviewers referred to Resonance as being rigidly and unabashedly old school, when I think it's probably the most modern game we've done. Uh, but they, it looks old school because of the pixel art, and that's more of a budget thing than anything else. But I really try to be more modern in my approach, and actually I, I go out of my way to try to avoid um, the comparison. Like on my website, you'll never see the term Golden Age or LucasArts or Sierra or bringing back the classics or Sierra 2.0, which is something that uh, what some people say. Yeah. I, I don't like making that comparison because I think that's very backwards looking. And I try to look forward. I try to think of new ways to do things and new ways to tell interactive stories and, and that kind of thing. I, I, I think those games had their place. They were great for the time. But it's time to stop thinking about them so much and stop comp- – I, I can't quite ex- – I'm going all over the place because I have a lot of conflicting <laughs> thoughts about it. As much as I love those old games – um, we need to just draw a line under it and say, now we're doing something new. And it's the fans' fault, it's the developers' fault, it's the journal, it's the press's fault. Yep. I mean, whenever someone comes across a bad puzzle in an adventure game, you know, what do they do? They talk about that goddamn cat mustache puzzle, <laughs> which, you know, was like, I, I think, 17 years ago. It's yeah. like, all right, you know, they're, they're more examples <laughs> of bad puzzles that have... Uh, come about since then but no we keep going back to that and it just sort of feeds that narrative of these games being old and out of touch which i always try to avoid and i think people would be shocked if they played um one of your adventure games that went back to a classic because maybe the reason to them that it feels like oh this is like the classics is because they don't remember how much you would hit roadblocks in those old games and how much you would reach a puzzle that wasn't very clear and you get frustrated and your games have I, I've never really run into a puzzle where I'm like stuck on it for an hour or something like that or stuck well, on some specific part. You exactly. I think that is a um a very common misconception. Like when people say, Oh, adventure games like are there there was something on Twitter recently. Someone posted all of the backgrounds from Space Quest Four. And they're not that many. There's like actually in terms of actual playable backgrounds, there's fewer backgrounds. Uh, than there are in a typical Wajidai game. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, people don't consider those games like short or you know, too easy or whatever. Um, it's because you know, the, the internet didn't exist back then. Exactly. And I remember playing King's Quest Three and spent months trying to defeat that stupid wizard and was happy to do it. Now I'd last five minutes before going on to Google and looking up the solution. Um, the solution's right there. And it's no longer fun to be stuck, uh, especially knowing that you can exit the game and, and get the solution. It's, 
I feel like it gets in the way of your fun. And a lot of modern adventure game developers know this, that they want to, they're focused more on the experience and making the experience enjoyable and rewarding than focused on puzzles and stymieing you and throwing obstacles at you because that's not actually fun. And um, so, yeah, that's what I do as well. Is one of your major focuses when playtesting making sure that people are getting through these puzzles without just repeatedly having to bang their head against something? Um, partly, yeah. Um, if a number of testers really get stuck somewhere and get very, very frustrated, um, I need to signpost it a little better or make it clearer. Or in some cases, nix it all together. I, I have done that. Uh, where I'm like, you know what? This puzzle just isn't fair. Everyone's getting stuck and they're not having fun. So I remove it or change it or or do something of that sort. Is there Are there any specific puzzles that maybe fell through those cracks? And let's say you are reading reviews and you're seeing a common thing about, oh, there's this one section that's really difficult. Have you ever had something like that that frustrates you afterward? And how much, and this is something I really like to always know about developers, how much do you take reviews into account when uh, either deciding if the game you released was success and how much do you use that information to build on your next game uh it depends Mm because i know with the first few blackwell games there was a lot of critiques about the notebook interface and how the biggest issue with it was that um the notebook interface was you get a series of clues and you could combine the clues like inventory items and you would draw a connection between the clues and kind of come up with uh, you know a, a different line of inquiry or a realization that would enable you to proceed. But the problem with it is that often the player would make these connections in their head and they would think, oh, the work is done. And they wouldn't think to take that extra step of combining those clues in the notebook. And they got very frustrated. And a lot of press, a lot of reviews pointed this out, that the notebook interface was very frustrating and it was an obstacle and no one seemed to like it. Uh, So I leaped to the absolute wrong conclusion and removed the notebook interface for the third game. And sure enough, when the third game came out, (laughs) everyone was like, where was the notebook interface? I really (laughs) liked that. I really miss it. It it added this layer of interactivity. And so I'm like, what the hell, man? (laughs) What do people want? Yeah, what do people want? And then I realized, I thought about it, and the problem wasn't the notebook interface itself. It was just the way people were using it. The problem was that people were coming up with the connections in their head first. And so uh, that's what led to frustration. So I tweaked it so you could only use the notebook interface to make connections that you could not actually make on your own. Like if you had a list of names and a set of initials, if you had like a list of names that was like several hundred names long, like, and you combined those two, you could find the one set of initials that matched a name and then you could move on. Mm -hmm. Like you wouldn't be able to do that on your own. So the interface became a help rather than an obstacle. So I, I do take a lot of that into account like reviews and critiques and things it's just i just have to be careful that i learned the right lesson yeah absolutely i mean it must be hard to just wade through so many different you know critiques and criticisms like that have you ever um angrily reached out to a reviewer before after a review went up not really i mean i a i kind of avoid uh, engaging with yeah. that kind of thing if i can help it just because you know, if someone doesn't like my game, me reaching out to them isn't going to change their mind. Yeah. Um, I always say, you know, 
try talking politics with someone. You're not going to change their mind. Uh, there was this one case of a review, I think, on GameSpot of Resonance where the reviewer definitely had it out for us. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what was happening, but he was deliberately pointing, uh, posting screenshots in the review that were spoilers. Awesome. And like very deliberate, you know, you need split second timing on the on the screen cap button in order to get that shot, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time I ever reached out because I felt that there was something going on there that I wasn't aware of. So we did reach out. Um, but most of the time I'm just like, you know what, live and let live. If they don't like my stuff, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to change their mind uh, unless they misspell my company name, which happens <laughs> quite often. Uh, yeah, you see, I think that's spelled when I would... with a J, people. Not a G. <laughs> I think that's when I would reach out when I'd be like, "Hey, <laughs> you're dressing that up. You're doing something like that. It's going to be weird." Um, because I've been reached out a few times, or I've been, you know, reviewers or uh, developers or publishers have reached out to me for giving their game what they saw was an unfair score, unfair shake, or something like that. And that's always interesting. But now, um, just recently, I announced that I'm stepping away from freelancing. Uh, for GameSpot and IGN, and I'm actually working with a company as an editor for them, uh, and also doing some community management work for them. And I think there's oh going to be a... work for GameSpot, and I just dissed them. Sorry. No, it's all right. <laughs> I, I was a freelancer. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, it wasn't my review. Uh, but yeah, I am now working for um, Tan Gentlemen, who uh, have some really great people there. And I think there's going to be a point where I'm going to have to like talk to people about like reviews and stuff, and it's going to be so weird being on the other side. Uh, just because I have such a an understanding of that process, I'm wondering how <laughs> I'm going to react. If I'm going to get super upset or super like email people and be like, "Hey, asshole, what are you doing over here?" So, yeah, it's going to be weird. Going, this is my first changeover and working for a studio. So excited and nervous. We'll see how it goes. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it always it always feels good when a review likes my stuff, and it always feels bad when they don't. But you know, I've done been doing this long enough that you need to. I have a bit of a thicker skin, yeah. uh, and also I, I deliberately don't engage like comments, forums. I mean, there's there's this one forum that I, I need to have my laptop administer an electric shock every time I go there because I want to. I go there and I read what they say about me, and I want to kill myself. That kind yep. of thing. But um, I just I need to stop doing that. But I just sort of shrug and be like, you know what, whatever. It doesn't stop me. Do what I doing what I do, so I, I just keep going. So yeah. all you can do. Yeah, my first IGN uh, cover feature had I think around two thousand comments, maybe between two and five thousand comments by the end. And oh, I God. started to read them, and then I had to stop. And then I remember my mom started to read them, and I had to be like, "You need to don't ever read that <laughs> stuff. Don't ever read that stuff. You're gonna want to start yelling yeah. at people for things that like they have no idea who I am, but they'll be freaking out. Don't engage. Don't engage. <laughs> it, it's funny. I was talking to a, a journalist. Um, uh, they were saying something interesting. How like even a decade ago, how you know you'd if you were in print, for example, like you could you would send it out, and it would be several weeks before you even saw the article, mm-hmm. but you still felt like you made an impact. You yeah. still felt like it still it still felt good. Um, but now, without that constant engagement, without that like long comment feed, without people responding, you know, instantly to what you do, you no longer feel that. You don't get that sense of uh, impact like you used to. Yeah. It's just not, so you kind of want that that immediate gratification of I reach someone even if they hate what I'm doing. It's like you are almost disappointed when no one engages with you in that way or engages with a review or or whatever. It's almost a disappointment. Like what's wrong? Why aren't people talking about it? I think you know? Twitter has made that even more so where like you get that 
immediate feedback for something where like and it feels weird if you don't from Twitter. So I, I yeah. And it's always interesting what kind of goes, you know, viral, at least by my standards, and what doesn't. Like I, I tweet something I think is hysterical and no one responds, and I I I post this ancient screenshot from a game that like <laughs> never happened and it gets like five hundred likes and retweets and it goes on rock, paper, shotgun. I'm like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> Always the thing you don't <laughs> this think. It never happens with games I actually release, but you know. I will write what I think is like interesting criticism about something or about the industry and it gets like you said, like two retweets and a like, and then I'll write something about how I think the rock is pretty cool in the new Fast and Furious movie, and that's the one that explodes. So I'm just like, I'm just gonna stop trying. I'm just gonna say what I like. To say we've gone off a little off topic now, what are you talking about the rock that's exactly what we're talking about uh <laughs> so previously we had been uh, discussing kind of the perception of adventure games classic adventure games versus new adventure games and uh i think the most the, the one big time recently that adventure games were in the regular news cycle was that double fine kickstarter and oh yes yeah. during that we kept hearing that adventure games have been dead and gone and we're reviving <laughs> them and that has to be weird for you because at that time your your team was going strong. So mm-hmm. what was your opinion during that time of hearing all this stuff and all these people saying like, thank God adventure games are back and you're sitting I here mean, like, um, <laughs> right here. <laughs> well, it's really funny that, um, you know, I, I see that a lot. I'm used to it. You know, like, uh, they talk about, you know, adventure games and they don't mention me and, you know, it, it's stupid. It would be stupid for me to get upset. It's like, you know, whatever. There are tons of companies out there. And, but I, I always hate that narrative of adventure games were dead and they're coming back because that could be, that could be applied to so many other genres. I mean, roguelikes, shmups, you know, platformers, they were, you know, quote, dead and came back in much the same way. But you never see or hear that narrative about those games that, oh, they were dead or no one plays them anymore, but now they're coming back or this guy is is bringing them back. And even uh, adventure game developers do that. We're bringing back the genre. And I, I, use, that, I use that term again. It's very elitist to say that. Like, yeah. you know, a whole genre isn't dependent on one game or one company. It's just there um don't focus on bringing back a, a, you know making the genre viable make a good game but in terms of the double fine thing um i had no issue with it because it brought adventure games my genre of choice kind of into the spotlight again yeah. and as a result a lot of press wanted to talk to me you know it was this kind of wonderful period of time where i didn't have to seek anyone out they all came to me. And I was like, oh, here's this double fine thing. Awesome. Let's get the Wajadai guy's opinion on this. What does he think? Or, and they, everyone wanted to get my opinion on everything, which was awesome. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that I definitely ro- rode on those, rode that wave. Um, but that kind of died away, you know, when a lot of those games came out and kind of the lackluster reviews or, you know, they, they kind of came and went. And that, Golden Age is is definitely over, uh, yeah. and it's I don't know if I benefited or not overall because I think um, the interesting thing about adventure games is that it's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. To talk about one adventure game is to talk about all adventure games. Like Broken Age came out, and if someone didn't like it, they would say, "Oh yeah, I always knew I hated adventure games." <laughs> it's like it, one game encompasses all of them, and so I definitely 
my games definitely suffered because of that, which, you know, it, it's, it's fine. You know, we had trouble before that. We have trouble now. It's nothing's really different or nothing's really changed. It's just, it's just sort of interesting how the narrative of the adventure game was dead or dying or coming back has just sort of been so prevalent. I don't quite understand that. And it is strange that so much of uh, an entire genre is resting on the shoulders of one game in some people's mind where, like you said, if, if that game, if it does not to their taste, then the entire genre is not to their taste. You don't, well, you don't hear mean, someone saying, um, I don't like the new Call of Duty, so I knew I didn't like shooters. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I've been, we've been hearing this will be the game that brings back adventures since The Longest Journey in 1999. Yeah. I remember distinctly, I wrote, this is, this is the great white hope. This is going to be it. And it came out and, uh, you know, it didn't bring back adventure games. Then it was, uh, I think, uh, Gabriel Knight 3. And then it was, um, what else? I mean, there were just so many games that kept coming out. And we're like, this will be it. This will be it. Yeah. And it never happened. And it still hasn't happened because that narrative doesn't really exist. I mean, adventure games are there. If you want to play them, I mean, they're there. They're still coming out. So um, I don't know. People just really like that that story of it's like the struggling underdog genre. And it's kind of used as a very cynical marketing tactic too, which I really hate. You know, if you like adventure games, you should buy our stuff, which I think is stupid. Buy yeah. our game because you would like our game. Like, I don't care if you like the genre or not. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and some people don't know, but you're not just the only person making games out of your studio. You both develop and publish titles. So yes. what's yeah. really the split there? And how do you find different adventure games that you feel uh, work under your banner? Uh, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, I first started publishing well it started off um you know i had this ideal idealistic uh plan that i would be creating a new game every four or five months like ha 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 like i was a naive idiot but <laughs> i realized very soon that i could maybe get one out once a year if i was lucky probably every other year yeah and it took so much time and money to make these games that if i had a bomb I was basically done. Yeah. So the logical thing was to get into publishing, and it started off with uh, Aaron Robinson's Puzzlebots. Um, I and I I paid we paid for the um, the production of it, uh, so that came out. Um, but I did something very silly with that, where I also programmed the game. So I didn't really save. The whole point was to get more games coming out, and I didn't do that with Puzzlebots because I programmed it. So I spent just as much time on that game as I would with any other. And then uh, Gemini Rue kind of fell into my lap, which um, was very, which was very lucky. He just wanted to finish the game and be done with it, and he asked if I could publish it. And I, I played it and loved it. So I'm like, all right, let's do this. So we finished it up, added some QA, got the voice acting in, and we published it under our under our label, and. It was, you know, it took off uh, really well. It's yeah. still our, it's still our number one seller, Gemini Rue, um, and it worked out so well. I thought, well, maybe I can do this with other games as well. And from there, we went to uh, Resonance and Primordia and Techno Babylon and Golden Wake and and everything else we've done. So it, it's worked out really well, if only because we get more games out than we could on our own, and it really spreads out the risk and adds to our long tail. Meaning that, like, I don't have to rely on one game to earn the majority of our income. In fact, like, a new game comes out, that's not where most of our money 
for that year comes from. It comes from the games that we've released like three or four years previous wow. that are continuing to earn money now. So we're in a very good position uh, financially to kind of weather out this, this indie apocalypse that we're in right now. And you have a, a large enough back catalog now where if you wanted to, you could start discounting games and putting them in bundles. But I know a lot of different developers have different opinions on the value of their game and whether or not it's worth you know, cutting a price in half or even more so in a bundle in order to see sales tick up for just a couple of weeks. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? I think bundles are great and heavily discounted games are great. Um, I think you need to be careful. Um, when I launch a new game, I do not discount it. For a while, when I first started my company, my games were $15, $14.99. And then in 2012, because things were so good and we were on Steam and the spotlight was on us, I lowered the price uh, to make it even more um, make it even more enticing. So I lowered all my prices to $9.99. Resonance was nine ninety nine, uh, Primordia was nine ninety nine, and it worked. You know, people went crazy for these games, um, but we were also really heavily promoted by Steam as well. Um, and then when that kind of shifted, you know, Steam opened up the, the floodgates, and uh, we're no longer as promoted heavily by them. I raised the price back up to fourteen ninety nine, believing quite rightly that the fans who want our games right away um, will buy them at full price. And then later, like I would start doing discounts to get people who wanted it cheaper. Like they can get it cheaper, they just have to wait. And it kind of adds more life to it when you dis start discounting it more and more over time. And then after like a year or two, you can put it in bundles and just sort of strip mine it for as much as you can get. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's, I, I think they're great, but I think you need to be careful. You know, do it smart. Do you ever feel like a bit of a compulsion to do so? Let's say you have a little bit of a down month or two. Is there ever a moment where you're like, uh, what if we just do a bundle for this couple of weeks just to see those numbers start coming back up? It's tempting. And the only reason to really do that is if you want people to, if you're trying to like bring in an audience and if you're trying to promote your next game and you want a lot of people playing and talking about your stuff. There was a year where I did every bundle under the sun. And what sort of soured me off of it at one point was uh, I, I think it was Primordia that I put in a bundle for the first time and two bundle sites really wanted it. And they were several months apart. So I'm like, all right, I gave one to, you know, I said, okay, I made a deal with one. I made a deal with the other. And then, you know, they both got wind of it and they both like kept rescheduling their bundles to get one ahead of the other. Mm -hmm. And it was like competition, like to sell my game for pennies, which really put a bad taste in my mouth. And yeah. I really, I didn't handle it as well as I could have because like my daughter was being born in the middle of it. So <laughs> I really wasn't paying as much attention, but it's like it went on one bundle. Then in a few days later, it went on another bundle and people were really angry. And I didn't quite understand the reasons why. I mean, you could buy both bundles for pennies. So I didn't quite understand the, the problem, but uh, I felt it really soured me off of bundles. You know, like I'm giving my game away for pennies in return for what? Um, my logic is that if I'm giving my game away for pennies, you need to, and you need to bring me the sales to justify it. And a mm -hmm. lot of bundles, aside from Humble, can't really do that anymore. Uh, so instead, I just put my game on sale, promote it heavily on Twitter, and I can earn the same amount of money. 
So I do that instead. And I think this goes back to that kind of knowing the value and worth of what you do and having a certain ego exactly. about your work where you don't exactly. want to get rid of it for, you know, five cents for my game. Like, yeah, but that was like these months of my life and all of this I put into it and to just give it away for, like you said, like you know, less than a cup of oh, coffee yeah. at McDonald's. That's Especially that now hurts. that like um, there was this one uh, Blackwell was featured in a Steam summer sale once and I – they changed the rules this year, but uh, in years past, you would mark a discount and then an, another discount for if it got featured. And I put something insane, like 90% off for like all of, you know, the first floor Blackwell games and not imagining in a million years that it would ever get featured. Sure enough, it did get featured and it, it we earned so much money. But yeah. in the back of my head, I'm also thinking, why did I put down 90%? Why did I put down 90%? <laughs> yeah, why not 75? Why not 50? Yeah, I know. Like if it was just like 80%, I would have earned twice as much. You know, it was just I, – I, I was so – you know, like you could second-guess yourself like crazy. Uh, and honestly, I know nothing. Like, that's just sort of the way I think at the end of the day. I know nothing. I'm just guessing. <laughs> um, I always say the smartest thing I ever did was be one of the first people to do this. Like I – Started in 2006, it enabled me to get in early, make my name early before other people started doing this, get a lot more games out. And that's the, that's the smartest thing I ever did, was start early. That's, uh, everything else was just luck. I know nothing, I'm just guessing, could also be the name of this podcast at this oh, point. Yes. So yeah, yes. I totally understand. So like we've been talking about this entire time, you know, things are going well for you. You have this certain uh, this kind of niche that you've carved out where you have adventure games you have this long catalog but do you ever feel the itch to break out of the adventure genre and just make something different what about a fighting game what about a shooter what about a 3d platformer has that ever kind of come to you kind of i mean i, I love uh, I, i've always been inspired and i one of my favorite games is knights of the old republic mm. the first one uh it just i can replay it so many times and love it every single time. Uh, just the way it's designed, the way the twist is delivered, everything about it is just great. And I've always wanted to make a game like that. And in fact, I was very inspired by um, what a, a former Bioware writer said a few years ago. Um, her name is Jennifer Hepler. She gave a, um, an interview where she said that she wanted, she worked for Bioware, where she wanted to skip the combat in Mass Effect and Dragon Age to get to the story bits. Mm -hmm. Her logic was that often in these games you can skip the story to get to the combat. You know, I'd like to skip the combat to get to the story. And she got a lot of flack for that, very much undeserved. But um, I thought when I heard that, like, wow, you know, I that sounds like the point-and-click adventure game of my dreams right there. <laughs> um, kind of to have that Bioware style of storytelling, but um, in an adventure game where there's no combat. Yeah. And I've been wanting to do that for a very, very long time. And that's what I'm doing now. That's awesome. I'm making that, I'm making that game now. Yeah. That's the urban fantasy I was telling you about. Does it, does it have a title right now? Unavowed. Ooh. Yeah. See, I like and the I name of all your some... games. You're one of the times where I like, look at all the names like, yeah, it's a good name. I wish I would have thought well, of something funny, like that. Half the time they're a placeholder. It's like, all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose something else later, but then it just kind of sticks. Yeah, I mean, if, I feel like after you've written it and said it enough, eventually you're like, no, now this is the name of this. It's hard to yeah. remove it. Uh, is that a 2016 thing, early 2017? I really doubt it'll come out this year. We're only just starting. Uh, so probably next year, early next year, I'm guessing. 
still that's that's awesome i bet this yeah. is, has to be exciting for you to kind of finally get into this thing that you've been considering making for a long long time yeah and it's been a long time since I worked on my own thing. It's been about two years. Wow. More than that, really. Because two years ago, I was finishing a game. Yeah. But I hadn't, I, I designed it like a year before that. So it's been like three years since I did any design work. And it's, it's tough getting back into that, but uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I can't wait to see that, even if it's all the way in 2017, which, you know what, when I say all the way, that's only a year away. That's not really that yeah. far. I just, I keep forgetting that it's already 2016. Yeah, I would try not to spend more than a few, like more than a year or two on a game because then it, uh, it just gets into feature creep territory and, yeah. you know, um, yeah, so we're, we're aiming for next year. Great. Knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, during the end of these podcasts, and I can't believe it's almost the end already, I usually try to kind of give one last tip or point or summarize a lot of what we've been saying in a way so that if anyone, is listening at this point, they can kind of take this and use it. And assuming you're still listening, assuming you're still listening, I, um, I wouldn't be surprised. Most like, oh, God. Of, you know, most of my dating voice. people listen through these podcasts. I'm going to assume <laughs> you're still listening. Uh, and this week, and this is kind of something that we had touched on earlier. I think it's extremely important, and I'm learning this more and more the more I do any sort of uh, writing work. Is that you want to make sure that. Whatever you value most in development, in writing, in anything, that comes through in your final product, especially if you're doing a very creative work. Like you had mentioned earlier, so. Dave, that we don't want you don't want to force something. You don't want to think that people want something and then build towards that. In in writing and video, that that can happen. You can play toward a crowd. You can make something streamable and take away another part about it that maybe you were passionate about. So I think it's important to pick and choose certain things that might give your game or your writing more attention and might even make it better. It's also even more critical to make sure you're conveying what you're good at and what you enjoy through whatever creative endeavor you are doing. So for me, I think that is something that I've learned more and more. And I think something that you've kind of proven throughout your career so far. Like if you don't care about what you're doing, nobody else is. Yes. Nobody else will. So that's important. Yeah. And I think people forget that sometimes. <laughs> people, like like we said, it's let's make uh, the next game that looks like Minecraft that people want to stream or let's make the next Five Nights at Freddy's that people are going to want to talk about. And, you know, <laughs> maybe that's what you're passionate about. But eh. it's, it's funny how I've noticed like a lot of um, <clears throat> there's this trend in indie game trailers where it's cut to like you don't see a lot of the game but you see a lot of people playing the game yeah and like laughing and having fun playing it as if to say this could be you and it's it's it's, it's, it is is, i I see a lot of it and it's become this trend now because it's all about i don't know like i like i said i'm i'm too set in my way now to to do anything different but um or i'm just too old and set my ways to understand what's go- what that is all about but i find it interesting see i'm happy you're setting your ways because i feel like it comes through <laughs> in a very good way in your games and once again i'm extremely excited to see you to a certain extent break away and try something that you've been thinking about and something new uh and yeah i'm looking forward yeah. to that and just for the rest slightly of slightly out of my comfort zone but still in my wheelhouse see, but that's when you can grow the much when you're slightly yes. out of your comfort zone but still doing something that you feel comfortable with uh so 2016 do you have any games that you are publishing and putting out? Uh, well, Shardlight's coming out um, in March, and we are releasing the iOS port of Blackwell Epiphany that's coming out next month. We're actually going to be announcing that very soon. Um, is this going up tomorrow? This uh, uh, probably Monday, so next week. 
All right. Oh, we'll we'll be we'll be doing the official announcement very soon. But I guess you hear it here first. We got an exclusive there. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> my wife is going to be designing something of her own, something uh, kind of on the short side to try to get that out by the end of the year. Um, then, of course, unavowed sometimes next year. Yeah, a lot going on. Uh, so, Dave, yep. thank you so much for joining me. And if people didn't know, this is actually the second time we talked because we did this podcast yes. before. And this one, you know what? Way better. I'm going to call it awesome. now and you can't even compare it because the other one's dead and gone. So this yeah, one, <laughs> way better. Uh, yeah. This was the sequel that is actually better than the original. So, uh, Dave, good luck on everything you're doing. Uh, thank you, sir. I'll be watching you and your team closely. What is your uh, Twitter handle if people want to follow you on there? Wadget I. That's Wadget with a J. So, you know. Great. So, yeah, thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.